At the cost of $44 billion, Elon Musk appears to be taking control of one of the most important means of mass communication in the world. That would be Twitter. What does this tell us about so-called free speech and democracy under capitalism? We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. excited to have Professor Richard Wolf join us again for our regular weekly segment where we talk about the biggest stories related to the economy, the state of the working class, and the crimes of big business. I'm your host, Brian Becker. The Socialist Program brings you content three days a week thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com forward slash the socialist program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today if you enjoy listening to this show. Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work and the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. There's a new hard copy edition of Professor Wolff's book, Understanding Marxism, which has been released recently. It features a new lengthy introduction, strengthening the case for why Marxism is worth understanding. You can check out all of his work at rdwolf.com. That's rdwolf.com. Professor Wolf, welcome back. Thank you, Ryan. Glad to be here. Well, we had a we had a last-minute change of plans, Richard. I want to mention it to the audience that when we talked about this show on Monday. The headlines were something like this. The war in Ukraine will last a long time. The war is expanding. The suffering in Ukraine is great. Anthony Blinken and Lloyd Austin go to Kiev and say the new American goal is not to end the war, if it ever was, but rather to weaken Russia, to which the Russian foreign minister Lavrov said, wait, we're possibly approaching a nuclear war. Oh, those are pretty big headlines. And then along with it, the other sort of grim forecast that the war in Ukraine was going to take a heavy toll on the world economy, the global economy. There might be a new recession. Those were the really dominant headlines for you know a day. And then the new headline, Elon Musk has won Twitter. Anyway, I want to talk about what it actually does mean for free speech. I mean, the media is calling Elon Musk a free speech absolutist. I was reminded of Lenin's comments on the first day of the Russian Revolution about the free press when the Russian Soviet was asked, are you going to have a free press? And he said, well, for the bourgeoisie, freedom of the press means meant freedom for the rich to publish and for the capitalists to control the newspapers a practice which in all countries, including even the freest, that might mean the United States, produced a corrupt press. Anyway, Professor Wolf, 
Sorry for the change of plans in terms of the discussion, but let's just talk about why this is such big news in the, certainly on the Wall Street Journal, banner headline from one side to the other side of the paper, and what it actually shows and indicates about American society. The reason this gets enormous headlines really are several. First, Twitter is something that everybody knows about, and so it is a hot topic that a newspaper or a a headline writer will pick up on. Probably more important is the fact that it's an enormous deal. You do not see $44 billion or whatever the final numbers turn out to be every day. These are unusual. These are the mega deals that are always big news in the stock market and beyond these days. And when you add that the buyer in this case is the richest person on this planet, Elon Musk, whose wealth is in the 200 to 300 billion dollar range at this point well then you have more than enough reasons to focus attention on this so that's the first thing the second thing and you've alluded to is of course the obvious important matter which is that a single individual a billionaire is now going to be in charge of what is the one of the most important means of mass communication in the world today. And that raises the obvious question, why in the world would any planet allow one person, a billionaire, to have such extraordinary power? I might mention that one of the decisions Mr. Musk is now going to be able to make as the owner of Twitter is to whether or not to let Donald Trump back in to Twitter, which in itself is an amazing decision that one person is in a position to make. But now let's be honest with ourselves. Whom did Mr. Musk buy Twitter from? Answer, other billionaires, the major shareholders of Twitter, Vanguard, Blackstone, the usual candidate, those are all investment houses, venture capitalist hedge funds that are run and owned by, you guessed it, billionaires. So this is a deal in which one group of billionaires sells what it owns, Twitter, to another billionaire who now becomes the billionaire in charge. For the rest of us, our mechanisms of communication, what enables us to talk to friends, family, local politicians, regional politicians, businesses, all of the communications, we have now become spectators. We watch the system we rely on, and we are utterly excluded from deciding whether and how it works. We had a notion of free speech that was administered by the billionaires who used to own Twitter, and now we will have free speech as it is understood and practiced by Mr. Musk, and he will do with it what he feels like. Of course, the notion of free speech never meant, or shouldn't have, 
that we are free to watch which billionaire will be telling us how and whether and when to communicate. Free speech should mean, and was often understood to mean, that we are all free to participate in shaping the communication systems that modern society, literally modern life, depends on. And that kind of free speech is nowhere in the offing, because under a capitalist system, free speech is bargained for and bought and paid for by billionaires doing business with one another, as it's reported in the Wall Street Journal. It is an offense against anyone who takes freedom, speech, democracy, or other such values seriously. It is a mockery of all of that. And I think it is real nonsense to get into contests, which I see all around me, as to whether one group of billionaires is a better or worse custodian for Twitter than another group of billionaires. And before we get too excited about Mr. Musk as the billionaire of the hour, let's just remember that because we run our system in this way, Mr. Musk can decide next week, next month, next year to sell it to still somebody else. That's what the free enterprise system enables him to do. And of course, he will sell it to yet another billionaire because the rest of us are excluded from that company that could possibly make a bid. It's an amazing comment on how far this country has come from anything remotely like the democratic principles articulated when we began. Richard, I want to ask you about the role of the banks in this, because yes, Elon Musk is a billionaire. When you look at most of his wealth, it would be considered what's called paper wealth, meaning he owns a great amount of stock. Many of his businesses have not really been very profitable, but he's always had credit or a credit extension. Similarly, like with Jeff Bezos, when he was building Amazon, well, he wasn't building it, but he was the owner. They were destroying the competition, the other capitalists, because they undersold them and Bezos didn't care actually whether they made a profit. They sold at a lower price. They cornered the market. They had customer service such that if you didn't like the product, you could just send it back. They almost always took it. It made it very, very, very convenient for the consumer and cheaper. And they broke the back of thousands of retail stores. And during that whole time, for like, I think about 15 years, Amazon never turned a profit, but it didn't matter because the banks decided that they were going to bet on Amazon and on Bezos. So even though he didn't have a profit, they just kept extending credit. Now, the reason I mentioned that is, again, the dominant power of finance and the dominant power of the bankers. Here's an article from the Wall Street Journal. The headline is, How Elon Musk Won Twitter. The social media network was expected to reject the Tesla CEO's offer, but its bankers called the bid fair and said the company could struggle to get there on its own, meaning it would be better to take this deal. Now, Twitter shares were selling at about 
$80 a share even last year in 2021. Musk is buying through this $44 billion deal shares at about $54 a share, $54.20 a share. Here's the two paragraphs I want to read to you from the Wall Street Journal. This is after Twitter originally basically said no to Musk, and that was like two weeks ago. Behind the scenes, Twitter's bankers delivered a report to its directors saying that not only was Musk's $54.20 a share bid fair, but that the company would have to struggle to get there on its own. Meanwhile, technology stocks, even of money machines like Facebook parent Meta Platforms, Inc., were tanking, making Mr. Musk's all-cash offer seem more attractive. What looked like a strong hand for Twitter's board just a few days ago, when Mr. Musk didn't have the financing and had seemingly little shareholder support, was weakening by the hour. So what happened, Richard, is that Musk went Morgan Stanley in particular, but there's a whole number of banks. There's Morgan Stanley, Barclays, Bank of America, BNP, SoCGen, MUFG. They all decided to throw in, like Morgan Stanley, $3.5 billion, Barclays, $2.7 billion, Bank of America, $2.7 billion. And then they also got from Musk an agreement that their loans would be the collateral on their loans were huge quantities of stock in Tesla, a 12.5 billion margin loan against Tesla. Anyway, let's talk about that part of it because, again, a lot of the headlines simply focus on the individual, but the individual, even very, very rich ones, are so interconnected and dependent, actually, on the biggest banks. Yes. Well, first of all, the reason you see many banks is that typically one bank is the leader of what is a syndicate or a group of banks. It puts the group together. Different ones of those banks you mentioned is the lead banker on each deal and gathers the others together. It's sort of sharing the risk, if you like, among the bankers. So in this case, Morgan Stanley was the lead banker, probably because of existing relationships between Musk and Tesla on the one hand and Morgan Stanley on the other. Morgan Stanley and the others are safe because if Twitter goes into the toilet, if it collapses as an economic entity or if some new technology comes along that wipes it out, they will have the stock, the collateral in Tesla, the the electric car producer, to guarantee, to fall back on if Twitter cannot repay the loan. It is typical when billionaires cut these deals with one another that they try to use the minimum amount of their own money and use borrowed money instead. And it tells you something about capitalism because try to understand, if you will, that the credit that was extended to one billionaire to buy out another billionaire to get control That's credit that could have been used to enable the greening of America to make us less destructive of our planet. It could have been used to solve the homeless problem in this country. It could have been used 
you fill in the blank of all the useful social improvements that could have been funded by this credit. Instead, the credit isn't going there. The creativity of working out a way to make such loans improve life for everybody, that's not being deployed. Instead, the people, the money, the loan is all going to facilitate deals from one billionaire to another. It is a horrific illustration of how this system is focused on the people who need it least rather than the people who need it most. It is so sad to watch. And then on top of it, the fawning attention of the mass media, themselves controlled by billionaires who are terribly excited about this new activity of other billionaires buying media from other billionaires. It is incestuous billionaire activity and sport, and the rest of us, as I said before, are reduced to being spectators as we watch others play with the means of communication that we need. And let's remember, this is nothing new. Jeffrey Bezos, arguably the second wealthiest person in this country, owns the Washington Post, was able to buy what is one of the one or two or three newspapers of record for this whole country, is now something that he enjoys being the owner of. We are literally turning the society over more and more the crucial components to the richest billionaires amongst us. And we allow these billionaires to take advantage. Your point about the share prices, yes, those high-tech companies are, are getting into trouble for all kinds of reasons that I haven't the moment now to go into. But Mr. Musk was able to buy a kind of, think of it as a fire sale, Twitter stock having dropped from 80, and he's only paying 54 uh, bucks for it. That is an enormous cheapening of the value of that company, and he grabs it on the way down. And maybe he'll make a killing with it as he did with Tesla, but you know it won't affect most of us because all he'll do with the enormous wealth he may get is play more games and buy more sporty toys for himself to play with. One more example of this tragic reality started long before Russia invaded Ukraine, and that is the inflation of food prices all over the world. But the war in Ukraine, and even more, the sanctions against Russia uh, that have come out of that war uh, are really interfering with food production, with fertilizer production, with the distribution of foods and fertilizers and so on, and driving the price up. David Malpas of the uh, World Bank says that the food prices will end up rising in the neighborhood of 35 to 40 percent. Not only will that drive hundreds of people poverty and mass hunger, if not even starvation, but it should be understood that there are beneficiaries. And guess who they are again? The billionaires. For example, the billionaire family of Cargill here in the United States, one of the biggest food companies in the world. 
the owners of Cargill, the family, is already billionaires. But with the rising food prices, they're going to be adding more billions. So we have a system, capitalism by name, that takes a crisis like the one in Ukraine and the sanctions and all of that, and instead of figuring out how can we fairly get everybody through this crisis, they allow some people to be brought to starvation because they can't afford high prices for food, while others who are already billionaires will become even richer billionaires because of the rising prices of the food. I mean, this is a system that has lost its justification for anyone to support it. Richard, I was just recently doing some study on the the French Revolution, and it's a you know obviously a very important a turning point in human history. Very complicated, complex series of events. Something that you know most people in the United States actually don't have the opportunity to study, and I'm not certainly doing a deep study of it. But one of the elements that you can see during all the twists and turns, and there were like scores of them before the revolution goes through its final high stage and then the counter-revolution, et cetera, et cetera. But lots of bad decisions, lots of conventional wisdom driving decision makers. And each and every time, the thing that seemed obvious, the thing that seemed like could resolve a, a contradiction, solve a problem, appease a part of the population, even if it was done for a moment, it was taken back. There was just complete inconsistency. So when people sort of think about the French Revolution, they think, well, it could have been avoided if only the policymakers of the French monarchy and the aristocracy had handled things differently. One of the things that is rarely talked about is that there was very bad weather for about two or three years during 1789, 1790. And the working class and working classes, which include, of course, people on the countryside, they spent the lion's share of their disposable income on bread, the lion's share, like more than 50%. And the price of bread, the price of grains and the price of breads went up. And so people went, instead of spending 50% of their income for bread, they were spending 90%. Or some people couldn't afford bread at all. And underneath all of these elements of intrigue and maneuver within the elites and the different sectors of the elite classes in France, you have this driving force, which is like the, the obvious thing. People can't actually survive under the current system because of the way it was set up. And I'm thinking about it because you've talked about this a couple of times, the price of bread, the price of grain, what the impact will be where Ukraine and Russia produce so much of the grain in the world. Even the start of the Arab Spring in 2011 was accompanied by this gigantic food price or the price of bread, actually. Let's just, in our last minute or two, go back to the subject that we were about to talk about, but then didn't because Elon Musk distracted us, or at least the headlines did. Let's just talk about sort of the, the unforeseen or unintended consequences of different policies by the elites, ultimately government's rule with either the consent or the the sanguine sort of passivity of the masses of people who are suffering. But under certain circumstances, and I would say the rising cost of bread being one of them throughout history, all of those political equations and conventional wisdom just goes out the window. 
absolutely. It's a wonderful way to, to pull together a number of things. One of the demands in the French Revolution that came up from the streets of Paris at the culmination were the demands for bread. Bread, bread, we want bread, we must have bread, we have, have to be able to afford bread. And in that moment, the uh, queen there, Marie Antoinette, demonstrated the utter cluelessness of the leaders of France at the time by saying to her associate, and will be ever recorded in history, as she heard the masses from below the palace yelling for bread, she figured it must mean they don't want bread. And so she suggested in her famous line, okay, well then let them eat cake. She thought it was a question of bread versus cake. She didn't understand the reality below her. I think you're right about unintended consequences. Masses of people being forced to hunger are going to be very angry at the leaders around the world, including their own, but not only their own, that they hold responsible. And that will include the United States. No one should be of any illusion about that. And in terms of unintended consequences, here's one for you to think about based on a story dated April 20. Six, if I'm correct, from the Asia Times. Hundreds of companies, mostly American and Western European, have pulled out of Russia, and that is going to hurt the Russian economy, which clearly is the intent. But what is not understood is that an enormous number of capitalist companies based in India, China, Turkey, and many other countries are gleefully rushing in to Russia to replace the departing Western companies. And that in the long run, Russia will be fine with these new companies. It will be the Western ones that pulled out that will face no resolution, no offset to whatever they've lost in the process. That's an unintended consequence. It will draw large parts of the world closer to Russia and China, not further away. It will replace the departing Western companies, and it will be part of the decline of the West relative to the rise mostly of the East that we are witnessing. It's an unintended consequence, but since it's obvious and it's now in the front page at times is a major outlet in that part of the world, everybody sees it, except of course here in the United States where our mass media don't tell anybody. The only thing comparable is watching this last weekend as the Secretary of State and the Secretary of Defense in the United States visited Kiev and announced that Ukraine is winning. And all that the world could think of is all those Americans who kept telling us that they were winning in Vietnam, that they were winning in Afghanistan, that they were winning in Iraq. We know what all of that was worth. These folks keep saying it as if no one has a memory, as if no one thinks of the parallels. And that is a self-delusion here in the United States that it is extremely dangerous for any country to indulge. Yeah, Richard, 
one of the things about it too is the, and I'll just ask you this in our last 90 seconds, it's the unintended consequences, what you're pointing out, I think it's so important. I hope people go and, and find that Asia Times article or, or go to your website. But one of the other things about it too is that the disregard, the obvious, if the media reported it properly, it would be like the obvious disregard. Most Ukrainians are not thinking, oh, we can't wait till we weaken Russia. Oh, we can't wait till we win the war. They're thinking like, how can this end? How can this stop? And obviously, it could stop right away if the U.S., because Zelensky doesn't have much negotiating room, if the U.S. went back and said to Russia, look, okay, we're going to make Ukraine neutral. Nothing so bad about being neutral. We won't put advanced nuclear missiles on your border. That could end it. But the American officials actually don't really care about Ukrainians either because they're not even talking about peace. They're talking about winning. For the average Ukrainian worker or farmer, the last thing they care about is, quote, defeating Russia or weakening Russia geostrategically. They want peace. I mean, it's such an obvious thing. But again, you don't see any of that kind of critique in the capitalist media here in the United States. But again, the last word, the danger here, and I wish I didn't have to say this, but the danger is that war will end at some point. Who knows? And at that point, if not before, you are going to see inside the Ukraine, the question that will be asked is the one you just asked, Brian. Did I lose my mother? Did I lose my home? Did I lose fill in the blank? Because the Americans decided to fight to the last Ukrainian with their own objectives. Were we the pawns? Were we the fall guy? Were we the sacrificial lamb to somebody else's game? And Mr. Zelensky or anyone in power in the Ukraine then? or any ally of the Ukraine is going to be gone, put through a very difficult time as the Ukrainian people ask that bitter question. Richard Wolf is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. There's a new hard copy edition of Professor Wolf's book, so make sure to get it. It's called Understanding Marxism. It's just been released recently. It features a new lengthy introduction from Professor Wolf, strengthening the case for why Marxism is indeed worth understanding. You can check out all of his work at rdwolf.com. That's rdwolff.com. You're listening to The Socialist Program. We'll be back tomorrow. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.